Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture from the Spectator world. I'm Ben Dominich, editor-at-large at The Spectator, and I'm happy to be joined by Beckett Adams. He is a Washington Examiner columnist and program director at the National Journalism Center. And Beckett, you are also someone who is just fresh back from Davos, which is what we want to talk about today. How was that trip? It was actually a lot of fun, surprisingly. I I think I, like many Americans, have a very sort of specific impression of Davos and what goes on there. And that was part of the reason why I kind of jumped at the chance to go, because I actually do want to see with my own eyes and you know, speak to the people there, get into the events there and see exactly what what is this all about. Switzerland, all the stuff unrelated to it, like Switzerland itself is a gorgeous country. People are extremely friendly. Davos itself is at the same time as insane as you think it is, but also there's parts to it that make a lot of sense. So what are the parts that make sense? Well, one thing I don't think a lot of people realize is it's essentially a gigantic business expo. So you have at the center of it is the World Economic Forum. You have WEF and they are out of their minds. They are, you know, the idea of individuality is anathema to them. They want to cut carbon emissions by outlawing fossil fuels. Um, There's very heavy anti-free speech undercurrent. I don't even know if I would call it an undercurrent. It's very explicit. So you have that at the center, you know, Klaus Schwab and all these various heads of state, including a lot of U.S. lawmakers who I still don't quite understand why many of them there. I don't understand why Governor Brian Kemp was at Davos or, you know, Kirsten Sinema. So you have that at the center. But around it, you have dozens, if not hundreds of completely unrelated organizations who are all trying to get a piece of the pie. So the entire town of Davos gets converted for about a week. You have everything from bakeries to bike shops to restaurants essentially rent themselves out. They gut themselves for the week so that all these little startups, if not just startups, but media groups, uh, technology groups, banking groups will set up shop there and they will hold these events. They'll hold these private seminars or they'll host parties. And they, the idea is that you, for them and for you, you get to get FaceTime with people you ordinarily wouldn't get a lot of access to. So it's kind of crazy. You're at Davos and you can be walking down the main thoroughfare, the main street, and Jamie Dimon's right there walking alongside you. So for any business, a startup or anyone who's looking for investors, the ability to just kind of casually bump into someone like the JP Morgan Chase CEO is very alluring. So you can go and talk to these people. And so consequently, a lot of the events are not insane. We'll actually have these groups that are like, yeah, whatever, all the stuff about you know, net zero carbons, we don't care about that. We want to talk about technology and what kind of a threat China poses via TikTok, et cetera. And so you can sit there and be like, okay, this is, you guys aren't off your nut. You are here because you realize the world's most powerful and wealthiest people are also here. So everyone is kind of trying to get a piece of the pie. So if you think of it in terms of it's a business expo without the heart of it, insane sort of people like Klaus Schwab. So I think there's this tendency to think everyone who goes to Davos is in on the take when actually you will run it. I know I ran into a, the wall street journal has its own spot there and they hosted a, a, a networking cocktail hour event on Tuesday, you know, and I ran into uh, Maria Bartiromo and he run into, I ran into Wendy Davis who founded women's entrepreneurship day. Like she, she doesn't care about net zero. That's not why she's there. She's there to talk about her things, her efforts to empower women and all this sort of stuff. And she, like most of the people who go there rightly realize I will have access to so many, not just influencers, but people with money. And that's 
if you're a business, that makes sense. If I ran a business, I would try to find my way into Davos because that's the best way you can get sort of FaceTime with these people. I've never been to Davos. I've been to Aspen Ideas Festival several times. And, you know, one of the things it's it sounds very similar in the sense that, you know, the at the core of it is this globalist leftist agenda that is what most of us think of as coming out of it. But then surrounding it are all these businesses and hangers on who are trying to get deals done and networking and and basically don't actually care about that that agenda that this is standing for in the minds of most people. But what was the craziest thing that you actually saw or heard while you were at Davos? Right. So the one thing I just slightly backtrack now, what everything I just said is not to say that there aren't also true believers and acolytes and you know these sort of Klaus Schwab groupies. There are definitely what I would describe as Davos groupies, people who aren't even connected to a group. I'd hate they're not, to meet them. Yeah. <laughs> they're, no, they're not connected to a group. They don't have a business. They just like going to hear the ideas and and to share. And so, no, there was this one American professor, and I was talking to her for roughly thirty minutes, and she, you know, was talking about somehow we start talking about the Holocaust, you know, as one does in Switzerland. As one does. <laughs> not awkward <laughs> at all, I guess. And she was like, you know, well, we are doing the Holocaust today. And I was like, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. I'm like, are you going to talk about Ukraine? Is it going to be about Syrian refugees and climate change? And just like the Holocaust then, we know it's wrong, but we're doing it anyway. And so <laughs> I would say probably the most difficult thing when I was there was trying to keep a straight face. Well, also, because I'm trying to cold interview people. I'm actually trying to do yeah. my job well. And as an interviewer, as a reporter, it generally is frowned upon to laugh in the face of the people you're talking to. And so I was like, that's interesting. Explain that. Explain that. So you would have you do have the true believers. So to your question, like the craziest thing is I at an event hosted by Financial Times in the CNBC Filecoin Sanctuary, which, by the way, was a non-denominational evangelical church that had been essentially converted for the week to host CNBC, which is a financial news service. So, yes, <laughs> money lenders in the church. Within their the Financial Times again, Financial Times within the church. I mean, you can't. If I wrote this, an editor would send it back and say that's too much. Um, <laughs> so I'm in there, and I ran into a little on the nose, Beckett. Can you change the scene um, with actual it, money lenders? I was, in like, should I be overturning tables right now? Like, what what is required of me? It, at that party, I spoke with three representatives from the eco side movement, and for eco side, they mean it as in you know the the uh, not the economy this, this is funny actually when they said ecocide i was like you mean like suicide for the economy and they're like no 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 like genocide for our ecological system for the world and i was like oh okay that's interesting so go into that explain that to me one of the big things they're trying to do right now is they are lobbying the hague to have it pass laws or consider under law environmental damage deforestation carbon emissions to treat it with the same severity as actual genocide so this was a very fascinating conversation, again, just trying to do my job well and like just asking a lot of questions and pulling it out from them. So what does that look like? And then he's like, when we were talking, he said, let me play the devil's advocate for a moment. Let's say you get the Hague to go along. Let's say you even get the United States kicking and screaming to go along. What happens when China and Russia and India say, we don't care about that? And God bless these people. Like, I don't have any anger or, or or anything towards them and like there's a sort of charmingness to their naivete their earnesty they were like well we'll put pressure on them i was like you know, i remember when team america was like well no hans bricks says he's going to write a very angry letter <laughs> and so i was like okay you're going to put pressure on china what happens again though if china says we simply don't care we're a global power your paper means nothing to us and they're like well 
corporations are run by individuals. So we'll have them go after the individuals in China. And so, okay, once again, the CCP owns all those corporations. Are you telling me that you are lobbying The Hague to potentially start a conflict either on paper or with guns with China over carbon emissions and deforestation. And so it kind of went around like that. You know, they were very, again, earnest and hopeful. So you run into that a lot, the true believers. And that's sort of the thing that I think ultimately fuels Davos. People like Schwab have been able to attract these big names because there are true believers. It is very, you know, it's, it's, fa- it, it's in the fad. You know, it's very popular. You will have all the American newsmen and politicians who go over there do not run against the current. Whether it's, you know, Salzberger or Stelter, or whether it's even Joe Manchin, who ended up having to walk back his statements when he seemingly complained that in America, speech is too free. He was confronted on that by Maria Bartiroma. And then later he was like, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. But ultimately, it's kind of what he meant. So you will have Americans go there and they don't run against the current. They kind of go with what is sort of the accepted pieties of the day. And that ultimately, I think, is what fuels the popularity and the demand for people to go to this because they're saying all the quote right things. You know, at, at events like this, there's there's some people who are there as kind of the turds in the punch bowl. Was there anybody's presence, uh, you know, any either speaker or guest or something like that, where you know the the Davos crew was kind of humming about their presence? You know, meaning meaning you know th- here's someone who doesn't belong here. You know, why did they invite him or that kind of thing? Yeah, I think there was. A sort of understood embarrassment in the lack of coherency in the fact that Russia was more or less unwelcome. A couple of years ago, they were very welcome and it was sort of a victory for international cooperation and all that. They were personas non grata this year, obviously, for the invasion of Ukraine. But what I think kind of stuck in people's craw and kind of presented a bit of a silent embarrassment is the fact that the you know the CCP was welcome. The vice premier of the People's Republic of China had a plum speaking spot at the main WEF event. And so you talk to people, they're like, yeah, no, Russia's wrong. Russia's terrible. And also, I'm not entirely sure why China's here as well, considering they are committing a genocide against their weaker population. And that was something that was very interesting at, at Davos, like Aspen or that you kind of get the very sort of similar rhetoric, very flowery, optimistic ideals of the sort of Star Trek future that they're aiming for. But at almost every single event I went to, and I went to maybe almost a dozen, there's only so many many events you can go to in a couple, you know, in four days time. Every single event I went to, and almost every single speaker I spoke to, the invasion of Ukraine was kind of at the top of their mind, because it served as the sort of direct contrast, a sort of rude reminder that actually all this sort of flowery stuff we're talking about, there's real life instances of what happens when people simply say, we don't care about what you say, we're invading Ukraine right now. So you have the ecocide people be like, well, you know, maybe we can pressure China. I'm like, look at Ukraine right now. The international cooperation you guys are talking about isn't really holding up. And this war is continuing. In fact, it was one of the very first things out of Jamie Dimon's mouth. He spoke at the female quotient at the Equality Center. (laughs) All these things have these names. They all (laughs) think Fluence 2.0 with sustainability. I'm like, okay, whatever the hell that means. Um, But the female quotient at the Equality Center, very first words out of his mouth were about Russia. So that was kind of at the forefront of everyone's mind. And then to your point, it was like, was there anything that kind of was embarrassing was them trying to be like, so yeah, Russia has invaded Ukraine and they're now in an all out knockdown drag out battle. But you know, if we really put our heads together, we can cut carbon emissions to so kind of it kind of felt unrealistic. Was there was there a feeling, you know, given the context of of the Ukraine conflict and everything else, was there this underlying feeling 
among the people that you spoke to that this was kind of a break in their assumptions about the path, the arc of the world toward the history that they want to create. They basically had assumed there were so many assumptions, obviously, if you rewind uh, to 2016 about the direction the world was going to take in the coming years coming out of the Obama era. It seems to me that so much of what they've done in terms of locking down this moral argument on climate and and other issues seems like a luxury good when compared to the actual you know conflict and the and the actual nature of the world which Ukraine has kind of brought into real focus. Yeah, I mean like I was saying it was it unintentionally or even intentionally served as a sort of again a stark contrast that undercut the sort of optimism that people were trying to push because that's generally how people speak at Davos. Now, what was really interesting is this is the first Davos summit uh, since 2020. It got shut down for a while because of the pandemic. What I say that's interesting because the pandemic was almost non-existent. People didn't talk about it. It wasn't a very big topic. I mean, it would get mentioned here and there, but it was nothing like Russia. It was almost as if it was, you know, a footnote from the last couple of years when you you the person attending it was like this is the first one we've had in two years because of the pandemic you would think it would have played a larger role in the overall conversation i didn't really i don't know if that's because there's some silent understanding that these people the supposed experts the kind of people who go to davos and speak i'm trying to figure out what language i can use on this really uh, screwed up the bed <laughs> they're handling the pandemic it might be a topic they'd rather not address because whether or not they want to admit it, the people they lord over will tell them you did a very poor job with this. So to your overall point, there is this sort of, again, like Aspen, there's like, let's talk about think fluencing and sustainability and all that. But it it, it felt almost half-hearted because at the same time, they're like, oh, right, there are tanks rolling across Ukraine right now and it doesn't look like there's any end in sight. I actually got a good chance to to get FaceTime with Jamie Dimon and I was asking, you know, what is J.P. Morgan Chase? You were because he said, you know, we have no idea how long this can go on. This can go on indefinitely. And so I was like, what are the risk assessments you were making in terms of global financial structuring and financial security? If this goes on indefinitely, this is obviously going to have huge shockwaves in Europe in terms of energy costs, but it's also going to probably send even more shockwaves to the United States. And so we were able to kind of go back and forth on that. And that sort of undercut the entire purpose of his appearance, which was to talk about the strives that places like JP Morgan and Chase have made for women in the workplace. And so you had this sort of, yay, women in the workplace, also tanks in Ukraine. <laughs> so people kept drifting back towards it because I think whether intentionally or subconsciously, they're like, yeah, actually, there's some real issues we need to talk about. So all this sort of flowery nonsense about, you know, look at how great our bank has done empowering women. And you're like, okay, that's, that's great too. But to your point, it's kind of a luxury. And so it felt like it would, even though that's the point of the panel, would kind of slide to the background and people would be like, oh, right, yeah, invasion. This population of people has been very much engaged in the disinformation, misinformation space, using those terms to identify and shut down speech and, and argument, certainly, you know, the tech side of things. But they've also been, you know, very vocal about that when it comes to politics and to climate as well. Talk to me a little bit about the attitude toward, uh, from Davos toward free speech. Well, there was the big panel that, again, had Sulzberger, the, the publisher of the New York Times, Brian Stelter, former CNN host, and EU commissioner whose name escapes me. And even if I did know it, I'm pretty sure I couldn't pronounce it anyway, so I'll just save everyone some time. <laughs> and their big talk was about disinformation and the way that that panel spoke and the way they addressed it, disinformation is the central issue facing humanity right now because 
all bad things flow from that. It causes fractures in trust in our institutions and therefore fractures our societies in general. It undermines expertise. It does, et cetera, et cetera. What was disheartening about the panel was the American newsmen who sat on it made no sort of defense of free speech. They didn't question the idea of European anti-hate speech codes. And in fact, when the EU commissioner sort of hopefully slash jokingly, but it was one of those like, you're not really joking. She's like, you know, in the United States, you you will soon have these anti-hate speech laws that we have in our legal code, which are which are good. And none of the newsmen from the United States were like, well, first of all, do you know something I don't know? I'm a newsman. Now I'm curious. That didn't happen. And then there wasn't a, well, wait a minute. What exactly are we talking about? Because in the same breath, you have Salzberger talking about, again, he said in the same breath, the things that are threatening our social structure are disinformation. And then he said, and misinformation and conspiracy and clickbait. And I was like, whoa, 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 these are all very different things. Are you talking about you want disinformation is an intentional lie meant to deceive and clickbait can be anything from hyperbole to the inane, you know, 20 pictures of cats that will make the greatest day you've ever had in your life. You know, we're talking about the BuzzFeed model. Do you want the BuzzFeed listicle to be treated under law the same as actual Russian or Chinese adjectives? I mean, what are we talking about here? And you're a newsman. You you oversee the most powerful newspaper newsroom in the United States. So I found it disheartening to have that, you know, to have Americans go there and sort of, again, go with the flow of the sort of popularized ideas and notions in Europe about how speech is good, but not too much free speech. And on that same panel, oh, I, I just remembered one of the other members was uh, United States Representative Seth Moulton from Massachusetts. And he hemmed and hawed, again, no staunch, unwavering support of First Amendment rights and the very idea of free speech. In fact, he, again, he, he sort of was like, ah, you know, I don't know about it. And then he was like, but, you know, when the pandemic hit, then I really started to understand that, you know, disinformation is a problem that we do need to curb. And then he said, you know, we're taught from a very young age that you're not allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater. And again, that's not true. That is a bad <laughs> misrepresentation of bad law that was discarded several years ago, which, by the way, if there is a fire in a crowded theater, you should yell fire, by the way. <laughs> but, so, I mean, I, it was seemed ironic to me because I was like, okay, what he said is not true. Is that misinformation? Is that disinformation? And should we ban him from, from Davos because disinformation is the greatest problem facing the world today? And as I mentioned earlier on a completely separate panel, Joe Manchin was griping about social media and he was saying, you know, part of the problem is that it encourages bad hate behavior. So we need to, you know, think about how we do this. And you're like, well, what do you mean think about how we do this? Again, it seems to me that you're saying the problem, the chief problem facing humanity is that people are speaking too much. And that seems to me to not be a bad problem to have, perhaps. But to your point, free speech, at least the way absolutists in the United States see it and think about it, was not welcome. And it certainly wasn't defended. And it certainly wasn't presented as a sort of legitimate alternative to the overall idea of, you know, we should have speech, but within boundaries. And those boundaries should be set either by corporations or governments, which, uh, okay, good luck with that. The the corporatist side of what you saw there, I'm curious what their general attitude was toward the state of the economy and their concerns about it. You know, was there a, a palpable sense of concern or were, were they still sort of optimistic that, you know, the, the market still is holding up okay. Things are, you know, there, there's signs of, of good things going on. What was the mood toward the economy there? Generally optimistic. There wasn't a lot of actual talk in many of the panels I went to 
and discussions. And then you go to the, the, the WEF itself has its like sort of mainline speakers. If they did talk about the economy, it was in terms of the global community. There wasn't a lot of micro focusing on the U.S. economy. You got some of that from some of the U.S. lawmakers who went there, but they're generally optimistic. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, we got problems with the supply chain. We have problems with this and that. In fact, the most I heard, not the most, I would say, um, the most interesting thing I had heard was on a panel about uh, liberalism and democracy in the modern world, um, which was hosted separate from the WEF forum. And they, the speakers there, which included a member of the EU, included a member from uh, Ukrainian parliament, they were talking about the world really needs to think seriously about open trade with China. And they took a very hard line against China, which I was very pleased to hear. Um, that was, again, that's an example of, okay, not everyone here is crazy. Um, but they were talking in terms, you know, China is racing to the top of global dominance, and they've been able to do it through largely through the cash that has been poured into their coffers from the United States from open trade. So there was some of that, but there wasn't a lot of, you know, we're in a bad place, recessions on the on the horizon. No, generally, like most years um, at Davos, it's very sort of optimistic and again, flowery. You know, things might be rough, but by God, we're going to cut emissions. You know, yeah. that sort of stuff. We're like, again, which it lends to this idea that the people who go there, who are the supposed experts and thought leaders are so far removed from the, the, the daily struggles of the, of the common person that it makes you wonder like, how are you supposed to fix the world's ills when you don't even know what the world's ills are? Which again is why Ukraine and the, the war over there sort of kept presenting a, I think it was an unwanted contrast that people didn't really want to address, but it's impossible not to, especially because you did have members of, Ukraine parliament uh, of the Ukrainian parliament at Davos in various meetings and stuff. So it's kind of like, oh, right. Yeah, you guys are you guys are doing a thing right now. Does anyone want to talk about sustainability? You know, not 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 really. But to your overall point to not ramble so much, it, it was optimistic if talked about at all. I think that's probably the easiest way to answer that. The uh, what was the best piece of gossip that you heard while you were there? <laughs> I mean, it was actually when we were in this church for this this Financial Times cocktail party might be a polite way to describe it. I mean, it wasn't debauched, but you know, there's alcohol. Everyone's shouting and bumping into each other. And then I, it's when I had this moment, I was like, this is church. And then I was talking to some people from some consulting firm, just you know, one of the many groups that are looking to get a piece of the pie. And they were all joking. Uh, they're going to have to get an exorcism in this church when we're done with it. Well, I mean, that's, the gossip is generally fairly, you know, you know, who's speaking or you know, who got bumped from what spot. It's not, it's sort of like high school. It's not anything really. I mean, it was funny. What was really fascinating was being over there in real time and then checking Twitter back in the States and seeing these narratives forming. I was like, well, that's, just, I mean, I was over there like Klaus Schwab is pulled out of the Davos forum, something about his health, something's going down. What's happening? People don't know. I was like, I'm looking right at him. What are you talking about? <laughs> He's right there. He's right in front of me. <laughs> You see that. And then there's, of course, all the rumors about various debauched parties. Mm -hmm. I think like any business expo, there's there's sleazy underside to it. But I mean, they're basic after hour, you know, happy hour parties. There's you didn't open your hotel room door and see any people in devil masks, Beckett. I'm really disappointed in you as an investigative journalist. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't invited, which is, which is nonsense. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's underhanded stuff. Underhanded stuff happens at all these events. You know, what was the, the term the secret service used during the Obama era? Whenever they had to go overseas, it was wheels up rings off mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. i'm sure that sort of nonsense goes on here but the sort of stuff that i've seen 
declared, not even suggested, but declared outright on Twitter by certain certain people. It's like, I, I don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. I don't know where you're getting that. You know, this doesn't seem any more debauched than, again, like your regular business expo you'd hold in Florida or whatever. So at the end of the day, Beckett, does your time in Davos, has it encouraged you in any way to consider eating bugs? <laughs> no, no. The food in Switzerland is quite good. The meat's great. Uh, no, I mean, that's the funny thing, too, is just the sort of contrast between what people were saying and what they were doing. When I went to one event that was hosted at this restaurant on the top of a mountain in the Alps, you can it's only accessible through a ski lift. I mean, it's that sort of stuff. And that was what actually was on the ski lift. It was a long ski lift, by the way. I had this conversation with this American professor about climate change being the new Holocaust. And it was hard. To, it, it's it's difficult to have that conversation with a straight face because you're like, that's interesting. How did you get to Switzerland? <laughs> did you swim or walk? And then I went up there and at this this gathering, there's literally hundreds of people, champagne everywhere. You know, there was like snow, snow drifts that had been formed by hand with bottles of champagne stuck into it. Waiters everywhere with these, you know, hors d'oeuvres, m- many of them containing meat. And, you know, when I run into representatives from MIT and they're there specifically in Davos to talk about their efforts to get to a you know, fossil fuel free future to get everything onto wind and solar. And again, I was like, MIT, you say, as in as in America. OK, how did you get here? How did everyone up on this mountain get here? And so you have those moments where like it's hard to take it seriously. I mean, I understand it's like, no, we we have to work with the tools we have to change the world. I get that. But it's really hard to do all five days at Davos and talk about sustainability and going green without having the thought this meeting could have been an email. Yes. (laughs) Ultimately what I kind of came, came away with. (laughs) Let's go out on this Beckett. You know, the, the thing that I think is, is, is interesting is that in times of economic plenty, uh, ideas like these conferences, like these can thrive. And then when things start to get hairy people start to look more toward their own priorities. Do you think that Davos is, you know, having gone to it now, do you think that it is in a period of, of rising relevance or is it in uh, about to enter or in a period now of decline in terms of its relevance at the center of our conversation? Well, this is, this is related to ultimately what I wrote about, which is right now Davos, I think you're exactly right. It's the sort of thing that'll thrive when there's plenty, when times are tough, it won't survive and it won't last precisely because unlike what I what I believe are the two greatest strides man has made in terms of his pursuit of liberty and self-improvement and self-determination are the United States Constitution and the Magna Carta. Those two documents have undergirding them a, a common belief in not just a divine being, but in natural law. Davos, there you can go to any person there. And this year is in Davos committed to improving the state of the world. That was the slogan you'd see on all the signage and everything. You could go to anyone there and ask them, what does improving the state of the world means? And everyone has a different definition. There is no unifying code or belief. It's all so vague. It's, and that's the problem you get when you have these sort of a worldview or a theology that is divorced from the, the theo part. When it's just your own, when it's man trying to figure out what do I want and how do I get it, you naturally will have this mishmash of incoherency and inconsistency that you'll have this event with the world's most powerful and wealthy people where Russia is not invited, but China is, it makes no sense. So to your point, no, I don't see it sustaining itself on its own, even during times of trouble. It seems to me to be the sort of thing that thrives when, you know, we're fat and happy, but absent that we talk about 
global war, another world war, another I mean, a pandemic like the Black Plague or something, people will not be flocking to Davos. They won't because there's nothing, there's no greater being and there's no greater thing moving people that they believe in this. It's purely based in ourselves. And when ourselves are under attack, we're going to focus on ourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator is the U.S. edition of the world's oldest magazine, and we are currently offering a special discount promo code for our podcast listeners. Simply enter podcasts for a 20% discount off your first year. To read and listen to more content on similar topics, visit thespectator.com.